three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. I put down on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, Would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by futurologist Dr. Ian Pearson to forecast what the world will look like in 2050. Some of Dr. Pearson's predictions include digital life extension, the toilets of the future, the prospect that sex with robots might occur more frequently than sex between humans, hypersonic travel, 3D printed fast food, and finally, a digital afterlife. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. How's it going, guys? I am thoroughly exhausted. I, uh, I've mentioned on past episodes that I'd been wanting a dog for a while. And so I, for some reason, decided to foster a nine-week-old puppy for a couple weeks to see what it was like and uh, potentially adopt. And let me tell you, I mean, for, for people listening who have raised a dog that young, um, it's... It's it's not easy. I mean, on the plus side, there's I you know I don't really need an alarm clock anymore because every morning I get woken up um, by you know the sound of um, of her crying that she needs to come out of her crate and, and you know go uh, go outside. I'm also getting a lot of exercise because I live in a high rise building and I have to take her in and out of the apartment like seven times a day. So those are those are pluses. Um, on the downside. Uh, um, I don't really have a ton of time to do any of my schoolwork because I'm watching her like a hawk 24-7. I mean, if, if you know, if I take an eye on her, if, if I take my eye off her for a moment, um, then she chews up my wooden furniture. She's chewed, chewed through my iPhone and MacBook charger. Uh, it's, it's literally like raising, you know, a, a newborn, um, having to sort of like, you know, potty train her and teach her, uh, crate trainer and teaching her name and commands. Um, the biggest issue that I've been dealing with is, uh, like most puppies, she has a fair bit of separation anxiety. And so if I, you know, leave to go to the supermarket for 30 minutes, she, she starts, you know, barking and crying and, um, which, which is really sad and, and, and really tough. And luckily, uh, my neighbors are, are understanding and actually leave my door unlocked um, so my neighbor can uh, pop in if, if I'm not if I'm not there and, and take care of her if she cries but then also it, it's to the point with her separation anxiety that I, it's hard for me to even like go into the bathroom to brush my teeth because she she sort of wants to like follow me in and um, and it's rough because she's also the cutest dog in the entire world and uh, and there's nothing nothing better than watching her sleep. But it's just, it's been really, really hard, you guys. And, uh, you know, the, the three weeks are coming to an end. It's, it's going to be tough to, to give her away at, at the end of these three weeks to, to, to give her back um, since, since, that's not, since I was just fostering her. I don't know. I mean, as much as I, I do want to keep her and I do want to make this work, uh, I also have to be sort of realistic, you know, the time that I'm at in my life. I mean, things are... Things are busier for me than they've ever been. I'm juggling uh, law school, applying to um, clinics and externships next year, and uh, clerkships with judges, and 
you know, managing the podcast and uh, and caring for essentially a newborn, um, which is a 24-7 commitment. I just want to make sure I'm being fair to, to her, giving her the attention and love that she needs, right, but also not neglecting myself and my own health and, and mental well-being. So it's, it's, I mean, it's been an amazing experience. I, I've, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've learned. Um, I've learned a lot uh, from from you know uh, from taking care of her. And uh, who knows? I might I might decide to hold on to her after all. But it's just been it's been a uh, it, it's been a whirlwind of a last a last month. And you know, I, I recorded the podcast a month, two months in advance. Um, which is sort of ironic because the topic of this episode is the future, and uh, I'm recording this episode in the past. Um, actually, I'm recording this episode in the present. When you're listening to it, it's the past, but from my perspective, it's the future. It's almost like that Spaceballs uh, bit where uh, Dark Helmet says, you know, what am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? And the other guy says, whatever you're looking at now is happening now. And then Helmet goes, what happened then? We passed it. When? Just now. We'll go back to then. We can't. Why not? We were past it. When will then be now? Soon. That whole, <laughs> that whole bit. I remember I watched that uh, in I think fifth grade. Um, my uh, teacher, Mr. Kramnik, showed it, showed it to the class, and uh, it's, it sticks in my memory. So, um, so I, I've done a fair number of episodes in the podcast about the passage of time and and sort of the physics of time and the uh, the psychology of how we regard time and internalize and externalize the concept of time. We've talked a lot about reflections on the past, but um, I want to almost take like a macro level approach and, you know, think through what the world will look like over the next 30, 50, 100 years. Because, you know, if we take a step back, if you had told me back in 2006 when I was a, a freshman in high school that 15 years later there would be an online superstore where you could buy clothing, toys, household goods, Anything you could dream of in a matter of seconds, and they could be delivered to your home in hours. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't have believed you. Or, or that people 15 years later would spend most of their waking lives, some people all of their waking lives, staring at screens, spending more time with, you know, interfacing with screens than with each other. I mean, that, that wouldn't have, uh, that to me wouldn't have seemed possible. Um, or better yet, you know, if that 15 years later, kids would be going to school completely online, right? Like there's no school bus, there's no classroom. Kids would be waking up in their homes with their moms sitting at the table in front of a, a desktop laptop computer for eight hours a day. And that would be school 15 years later. School from home. Homeschooling. <laughs> um, and that would be the norm for everyone. Like I, I don't know if you had, had you know sat in a room with freshman Ricky and and, uh, and showed him this future, yeah, I don't know how I could have wrapped my mind around it. And that's because the future is just, you know, there are so many variables that, that go into um, forecasting what the future might look like. And some of it uh, has to do with rates of, um, rates of societal and technological progress when it comes to telecommunications and the internet, I guess that accounts for it. But some of it are, are these these black swan events like global pandemics that have never happened before on this scale, which you know you you couldn't have predicted. So it's it's kind of crazy when you you know try to conceptualize what the future will look like on a macro level, how the world will change in 50, 100 years. On a micro level, how your life might change. 
And so I did some digging on this because I was wrestling with this question. And it turns out there's actually an industry, there's a field where some of the most brilliant people in the world have spent their lives making exactly these sorts of predictions for what the world will look like in the future. So if you're that kid who in 2006, you would have loved to know what would have happened 15 years later in 2021, you know, how the world, the landscape might have changed in all these different areas. And you're curious to know 15 years later in 2036, how far might we go in you know, by that time, then then you're going to get a lot out of this episode because I actually speak to two futurologists um, on this week and next week's episode in kind of a, a two-part future series. So this week, I'll be joined by Dr. Ian Pearson and next week by Tracy Follows, aka Tracy Futures, uh, to, to talk about these issues and, and, and hear about their methodologies and their predictions for what the future will hold in the next 50, 100 years. Um, so this week, I will be joined by Dr. Ian Pearson. So a little background on Dr. Pearson. Dr. Pearson has been a futurologist for 29 years, tracking and predicting developments across a wide range of technology, business, society, politics, and the environment. He's a math and physics graduate, a doctor of science, and has worked in numerous branches of engineering, from aeronautics to cybernetics, sustainable transport to electronic cosmetics. His 1850-plus predictions include text messaging and the active contact lens. More recently, a number of predictions in transport technology, including driverless transport and space t- travel. So that's that's really impressive. So Dr. Pearson, um, I guess 20, 30 years ago, was able to express that these these phenomena might be possible in the future. He writes and consults globally on all aspects of the technology-driven future. He's written eight books and made 850 TV and radio appearances. I don't know if that counts podcasts. Um, if it does, then this will be 8, 851. <laughs> He's a chartered member of the British Computer Society and a fellow of the World Academy of Art and Science. And what I like most about Dr. Pearson is his email signature has his, his mobile phone, and it says in parentheses, often on silent, which I, which I can definitely relate to because I miss calls and, and text messages all the time because I, I don't as – you, as you all know, I, I'm not crazy about being accessible with my phone all the time. I'm um, – so this was a lot of fun uh, to record, and, and we chatted for a while. This will be one of the, one of the longer episodes, uh, part one of the Future Series. And so without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Ian Pearson. Nervous Habits Podcast is sponsored by Skillshare. You guys, over the last couple of weeks, I've been taking some breaks from, you know, reading my uh, my federal white collar crime cases for class uh, by checking out some of these uh, Skillshare courses. And I gotta tell you, I've really been enjoying the ones on on productivity. There's a class called Email Productivity Work Smarter with Your Inbox with um, tech writer and email conqueror <laughs> Alexandra Samuel, and it talks about how to actually structure your daily email routine. Um, and be proactive with uh, folder systems and automated filters and things like that. Because it's like I've said on the podcast so many times before, uh, practice makes progress. And if you want to get better at an area or at a specific skill, it's not going to happen automatically. You actually have to invest the time and the effort um, into accomplishing that growth. But the good news is our friends at Skillshare are offering a free trial of premium membership for my listeners. You can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Nervous Habits and get a free trial of premium membership. That's Skillshare.com slash Nervous Habits for a free trial of premium membership. So if you're like me and you're procrastinating your schoolwork or any other work that you have to do by searching dog plays with doorstop on YouTube or uh, kid asks Neil deGrasse Tyson can a black hole suck in another black hole and gets his mind blown away. Instead of doing that, actually, you know, spend a couple minutes uh, checking out these classes. Uh, and again, it's Skillshare.com slash Nervous Habits for a free trial of premium membership. 
Now back to the show. Dr. Ian Pearson, welcome to Nervous Habits. Hi. So Ian, you're, you're a futurist. And, and for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with the study of futurism, what exactly do futurists do? Well, futurists do a lot of different things. I'm an engineer and I, I wear a futurist hat because I've, I've always worked at the front end of technology. I started in missile design, designing missiles that weren't going to be used for another 20 or 30 years. And I moved from there into telecoms where I was designing the sort of uh, telecom systems you might be using in 10 years time. Uh, we were designing those back in the early 1980s. So um, uh, that's that's kind of where my whole engineering career has been on the very front end of, of engineering. And when you're doing that, you need to think about what the future looks like to some degree. You've got to work out what the market is that you're going to be launching these future products into. So I discovered that bit of my job was actually more interesting than just doing the actual engineering. So I started uh, just doing more and more description of what the future looked like. And nobody ever told me to get back to work. <laughs> and then I discovered some some time later that there was a whole bunch of people around the world doing this, and they called themselves futurists or mm. futurologists. And so I used that title ever since. But really, I'm an engineer with a very thin futurology hat on, and I I, I look at the future from an engineering perspective. I try mm. to figure out if I was going to do something like, say, a flying car, how would I do it? You know, would that be a better way of doing it than this way? Uh, uh, if I was going to do it that way, how long would it take? And then using that sort of logic, you can assume that since there's bound to be some engineers in the companies that are likely to be making these who are at least as good an engineer as I am, they mm. would also be able to do it that way or an even better way, either at the same time or even earlier. So you should be able to get a good picture of when things are going to arrive and what sorts of things might arrive just by thinking it through uh, endlessly as I do. So I spend about a third of my time just reading up and keeping abreast of all the latest developments in, in fundamental uh, technologies and science breakthroughs. And then I try to use that as an engineer to see, well, what could I do with this that might yeah. be interesting, that might sell? And if I'm going to come up with that, it's chances are some big company is going to do the same thing. So that's how I do it. That's my methodology. I, I don't use any fancy computer models. I used to 30 years ago when I started, but I discovered very quickly that anything that's worth predicting is too complicated to use a computer model to do huh. it with. So Ian, there's a couple of things I want to unpack there. The, the sure. first thing you said was, you, you, you know, you mentioned that you're a futurologist or a futurist. Just for listeners, are those two terms interchangeable? There's, there's no distinction between futurology versus futurism? As far as I can tell, they're exactly the same. Futurology is the study of the future. It's the English etymology of the word. Futurism, to me, implies some sort of art school. There used to be a, a bunch of artists 100 years ago called futurists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that term was already taken. So futurist is a is misuse of, of, of the term, which already was used by somebody else. Uh, futurologist is the study of the future. So a, a moment ago, you also mentioned that as as a futurist, you know you're you're essentially um, trying to extrapolate. Uh, you're trying to engineer predictions for certain industries, and we'll get into specifics later. But I'm curious, given that there are a number of other futurists, futurologists out there, how far into the future do you generally forecast? Is it you know five, ten, fifteen years? Do you forecast a hundred years out? What's what's your baseline? I usually go uh, at least five years ahead. Uh, mm -hmm. It's quite often I go out to about 2050. 
but uh, there's a few points in there which which we need to look at. One is you, you mentioned the word extrapolate. You can only extrapolate when there's an existing trend. So mm -hmm. if you're looking at something like augmented reality and you're looking at existing visors and saying, well, these might be slightly better resolution next year or even better resolution the year after, you can do that, but you can only go out a few years time. If you're doing something like say an active contact lens, uh, where you're looking at something fundamentally different from the way that the current visor works, uh, then you can't extrapolate that because there's nothing to extrapolate. All you can really do is say, well, if I was going to make this, I would need this kind of technology to do it with, and that doesn't exist yet, but I could right. probably make that in X years time. So the sort of an extrapolation of the fundamental science and the fundamental engineering capabilities, but really there isn't a trend already in existence that you can extrapolate. So when you go more than a few years ahead, you have to just use logical deduction and clear thinking to come up with that. And that's what I do uh, as an engineer. You, you can't really go much beyond 2050 because right. by, by 2050, we will have artificial intelligence helping us. And that AI uh, by 2050 will be, probably be much smarter than we are. And we'll also be engineering direct links between that AI and our brains. So it's kind of like trying to anticipate what a super smart species will come up with. Uh, and you can't, you know, a, a, an idiot can't es estimate what Einstein <laughs> might come up with. Uh, uh, so, you know, you, there's, a, there's almost a block around about 2045, 2050. You can't go much beyond that with any certainty at all, because the people who will be doing that engineering will be so much smarter than we are in conjunction with their AIs. Right. So that's okay. So 30, so 30 years from now is, is the absolute limit. And the reason why I ask is because um, I'm sure that, you know, there are people who are reading up on, on futurology and they're thinking, you know, how can someone predict a hundred, 200 years? How can they say what the world will look like in 2200? And it looks like you, you address the question of once you reach that 2050 point, given the, you know, uh, the uh, universality of, of AI, given the direct links to the brain, which we'll speak about in a few moments, um, that's, that's the cutoff. You can't really forecast beyond that. Yeah, you can do uh, some things beyond that. I mean, you can say, you know, with geological processes, you know, we might see a little bit more continental drift in 200 years time, or you might be able to uh, give a very accurate statement about where the uh, relative positions of Earth and Mars might be in exactly 200 years time. Those sorts of things you can predict with, with pretty high certainty, but it's, mm. there's no point in doing that. It's not really particularly valuable. Mm. Um, the sort of things about, you know, what will fashion be like in 200 years time or uh, what will technology look like in 200 years time? No, you can't do that sort of stuff with any certainty at all because you try and anticipate what a a super smart species might invent in that time frame, and you just can't do that. Got you, got you. So earlier, you know, you had spoken about your methodology, and I know that before our conversation, I, I had read that you you have a record of eighty five percent inaccurately uh, making these these future predictions. Sure. So how exactly do you measure that, Ian? A long time ago, I started doing the occasional technology timeline. So I just make a list of 100, 200, 300 technologies and try to figure out roughly when they might happen. Uh, you know, when would these first appear as, uh, as something you could get in, you know, first demonstration product or something like that. And so we started publishing those because they were good PR. And 10 years later, I thought, well, how did I do on these on these predictions? So I just went through some of our earlier timelines and marked uh, which ones you know you could now get right, or which which ones you could now buy, and which ones you couldn't. Uh, so I just basically ticked or crossed each each one according to whether it was reasonably accurate 
but whether it was way off the mark. And that's where the 85% came from. Uh, the interesting thing is that those were uh, pretty you know, trivial things. We just did it as a PR exercise. So there wasn't a huge amount of thought going into that. But then again, they were only 10 years ahead. So hmm. you'd expect to be able to get pretty good uh, record. And because we were just working in technology and because technology is fairly predictable, we managed to get that 85% accuracy without even thinking about it too much. Uh, you know, for a 10-year horizon. Going beyond that, obviously, it's less accurate or trying to do a prediction of something like politics or fashion. You would never get anything like 85% of 10 years out. I, I want to I wanna talk through some of the things that as of, you know, 2021, you're predicting sure. for that 2050 uh, cutoff date that we spoke about yeah. earlier. One of your most famous predictions is that by 2050, humans will have the capability to become immortal you realize this is a pretty significant claim, no? Yeah, it is. And uh, other people make claims like that and they put other dates on it. But the, uh, the date that I came up with for that is, is, is based on real technology. It is to some degree extrapolation. The way back in 2001, I uh, had a bright idea one day. I called it active skin. And mm -hmm. I realized that we're heading towards an era where the technology will be such that you can make devices which are so small uh, that you can make uh, uh, devices as small as skin cells that you could imprint into your skin in between the existing skin cells. And they would be able to connect to nerve endings or connect to uh, uh, capillaries and do the sort of stuff you, that your Fitbit does, you know, monitoring your blood chemistry, but also monitoring the signals going through the nerves passing by as well. So you'd be able to make rudimentary connections to your nervous system, and you'd be able to make that probably in the 20 teens. Now, we haven't seen very many of those, but we've seen some demonstrations of people making uh, membranes where they can uh, pick up blood chemistry and starting to make um, bracelets and membranes that pick up nerve signals too. And Facebook have been in the news the last week making bracelets to do that sort of thing. So we're starting to see that technology happening. Now, if you take that a bit further forwards, you think, well, if we can make it as a micron or smaller, we can put it in your skin. When we get down to fractions of a micron, this is getting so small that you can start putting these things into the brain. Now, we know Elon Musk is doing his Neuralink, uh, where he basically has uh, long, thin wires with devices attached to them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a very crude 2020-ish uh, sort of way of doing it. Uh, if you think about a 2050 way of doing it, you're more likely to get an injection of some fluid into your arm, which contains absolutely tiny devices, which float through your bloodstream and are you know, so small they can pass through the blood-brain barrier. And they will sort of find their home in the brain and just set up beside, in, beside the synapses in your brain. And they will be able to relay the activity from that uh, synapse to and from the outside world. So at that point, and the sort of technology we're looking at puts that around about 2040, 2045. Uh, when you've got that, you have the ability to essentially map out what your brain looks like and to map the activity of all of the things in your brain. So you can make a replica of it essentially outside and you can run that replica at electronic speeds rather than biological speeds. And most importantly, you can have a, a, a simple link using, using radio, uh, which links the two together. So you've got uh, essentially building an extension of your brain into 
hype into cyberspace. So you imagine you, you, inside the cloud, you've got a, a huge extension to your uh, biological brain. And just like making a house extension, as you start wandering in and out of the rooms in your extension, you still think of that as part of your house. Your brain uh, wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the biological cells that it's using for the processing and memory and sensations compared to those that, which are on the cloud to be indistinguishable because they'd actually behave the same way. So your mind would gradually grow and gradually evolve. And uh, as you edge, more and more and more of your mind would be running on the cloud IT infrastructure, and less and less of it would be running inside this uh, clumsy, slow bit inside your head, the meatware, as some people call it. Hmm. And that's interesting because if you then get hit by a bus or you fall off a cliff and your body dies, it's not that big a deal because most of your mind is actually already running in the cloud or is replicated in the cloud. So your mind can carry on going as if nothing had happened. And then you hire an Android and you use that as your <laughs> from now on, and you just carry on as if nothing had happened. Death isn't wow. a major problem. So that's uh, 2050 before you can do that sort of stuff. You uh, might have to add a few years onto that now because of the uh, delays and the economic problems caused by COVID. But certainly in the 2050, uh, 2055 timeframe, I would expect that we should be able to do that kind of technology. And of course, at first, it'll only be available to the rich and famous. But okay. being IT, it'll reduce in cost enormously quickly. And by 2060, 2070, all of us will be able to afford to buy that kind of technology. So anyone listening to this podcast today, <coughs> unless they're old and gray already, uh, there's a good chance of surviving long enough to benefit from this kind of immortality, albeit electronic immortality. Okay, so this, I mean, you're painting an, an, eer, an eerie future. This almost sounds like a dystopian, you know, if you watch the show Black Mirror or a, a, a sci-fi film, because what you're saying, I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, is that people, you know, given the, the technology that you laid out, people will be able to almost upload their consciousness onto the cloud and have, as you said, a, a physical form, which is a, the the body, which might be an android or might be a human body, where their mind lives in the in the cloud forever. Which sort of begs the question, Ian: Is that really them? Is that it? What, you know, if I upload my consciousness onto the cloud, is that still me? Do you know? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, I know exactly. That. I get asked this all the time, and there is a huge distinction between making a copy of your mind right. and making extra space that your existing mind exactly. can run in. So I, I liken this to making a house extension. You know, if you decide your house is too small, you can sell that house and move to another house that's bigger down the road. And that's obviously not the same house. You could stay put and you could make a few extra rooms on that house, and that is still your house, but it's bigger. And that's kind of like what we're talking about doing with your brain. We're talking about keeping your existing brain, keeping your existing mind, but providing providing more space to move around in for that mind. So at no point does it stop being you. Uh, you just got a bigger capacity, you got more memory, you got faster processing capability, you might even improve the quality of your senses, but you're not stopping being you at any point. And you're still growing into this, uh, this extended space that you now have. So when you get to the point that 99% of your mind is running in that space, at no point have you made a copy or done a backup and restored the backup. There's, there's no point at which it's not you anymore. It's, it's, it's still you. It's just that when your body dies, you, you just lose a tiny fraction of that, which used to belong inside your head. And the vast majority of your mind is already running on the IT and you've never noticed 
but it is. And then you can start linking that to other devices like Androids and stuff as you will. But it's a, it's a form of electronic immortality that doesn't require you to upload your mind or mm -hmm. make a copy of your mind. So you don't have this problem of the philosophical problem of, is it you or is it a copy of you? Nobody wants the copy of you and then you delete the original. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to do that. Right. Uh, it's, I, it's very important that it stays you the whole the whole time. It's interesting. This almost, I mean, this might get metaphysical, but but it almost you know brings to mind that the mind body problem, which is the idea that under uh, monism the the mind and the brain are the same thing, and under dualism they the mind and the body function separately. And it, I mean, I, you know, who's to say that contrary to the view that you're espousing, if the the brain and the body all encompass a sense of someone's identity. So once you divorce the mind from the body, uh, you know, people are losing an essential element of themselves, right? Like, I, I guess sure. I hear what you're saying with the, the memories are going to be intact and, and uh, all of the, the function of, of, you know, the, your mind will, will actually be there. But um, I think in terms of the idea of the self, there is an argument to be made that it's not going to be you if you actually get uploaded um, into this system in, in 30, 40 years. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people would agree with that argument. And uh, it is true, though, that there's, your, your brain is made of uh, normal materials, which are known to science. It's, it's, it's made of various different kinds of atoms. There, there, there's no magic material inside the brain. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in there which future technology won't be able to uh, replicate the same sorts of structures. E even if necessary, we can use DNA and biological processes to replicate those sorts of things if we needed to. But you can make replicas of every single part of the brain, if you wish, and you can connect that to the brain as it, as it already is um, in a seamless way that just essentially means it's essentially an extension of it. And that applies to not just the, the cortex, but also the um, all the other uh, more ancient parts of the brain and the brain stem and so on. Uh, so, you know, every part of the brain is made of various kinds of cells and you can replicate that same function uh, electronically and you can probably improve it when you're replicating it as well. Uh, you can make it much smaller, much faster, whatever you want to do. So the I, I, I don't buy into this problem that uh, uh, there's something inside the brain or inside the body that you can't somehow uh, make a, an engineering replica or an extension too. You can make that same kind of, of, of existence and you can connect to that. So uh, at no point do I come across any philosophical problem in, in, in doing this. Mm. So I want to say two more things on this real quick and then we, and then we can uh, move on. Mm. Have you seen, there's a movie called Transcendence. No, it, it, it's on my list of uh, things that which I'm supposed to watch at some point. Okay. <laughs> well, the, the reason why is because the, the plot of the movie is exactly what you've explained. Yeah, it's sure. it's a, uh, a wealthy um, uh, scientist that uh, ends up, you know, he's dying and he uploads his consciousness. Um, and uh, spoiler, you know, I'm not, I'm actually, since you plan to watch the movie, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give away the plot, but I think it, it calls to mind the, you know, the ethical issues with, with, with this sort of model. I mean, if everyone, I don't, I actually don't think that uh, if this becomes an option and if it's feasible in 2050, I don't think the vast majority of people are going to sign on to it. And I think the reason why is because certain things in life, just, um, you know, speaking normatively, certain things are valuable because of their scarcity. And when you, you know, think about mortality, um, if, if everyone suddenly lives their lives knowing that 
at, at, at some juncture, they're going to, their mind's going to be uploaded and they might trade in their body for a new one, or they might be replaced by a droid. I think that would fundamentally change um, how we go about our existences. And, and I just don't think for personally, and I also think for uh, a lot of people listening, this is something that they would actually choose to sign on to. But um, I, I guess, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I think uh, I would agree with you. I mean, I'm not particularly uh, enthusiastic about doing this immort- immortality. I would have uh, the same values as you just described. So I think for a lot of people, I'd be quite happy just to be normal human beings uh, and have their normal death. For some other people, you know, they're very anxious about dying or they want to live forever. Uh, and, you know, that's a percentage of people. I don't know what percentage it is, but, you know, I get letters every every few days. I get somebody else writing to me. They're terrified of dying. How fast can they have this technology? <laughs> For some people, they really do not want to die. And uh, yeah. you can understand that. And it's uh, I think it's there's nothing wrong with having it as an option that some people could do this if they wanted to, but let's not force everybody because not everybody thinks that's a great thing. Of but course. there are lots of ethical issues in there. We could talk all day about them, but just listing uh, one or two interesting ones. When you've, your body's died and you're connecting to this Android, there's nothing to stop you having several Androids. You could connect to hundreds of Androids if you wanted to. And then you're starting to make a really serious impact on environment. Uh, your environmental footprint becomes potentially huge. Absolutely. So we might see some ethical uh, pushback on that saying, sorry, mate, you know, maybe you're a billionaire, but we don't care. You're not allowed to inhabit an entire country. Uh, that's more than your allocation. So mm. you're not getting that. And there's also the the question of who pays to keep on the server uh, expenses in in 100 years time so that you can carry on living. You know, maybe uh, a future society might decide that they've got enough problems of their own. The last thing they want is all these people from the 21st century uh, existing well well beyond their uh, reasonable allocation of time. Uh, Maybe we should just save some energy and switch them all off. Or maybe they're just causing too many social problems, carrying on going on about how they did this 50 years ago or 100 years ago and uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they're just so annoying. Let's get rid of them all. There's all sorts of ethical issues and, and practical issues. Absolutely. There are also the Borg ones as well. When you're connected into, the, uh, into this electronic infrastructure and your mind is in there, uh, you don't need to bother doing this podcast because you could just link your mind directly to my mind and just absorb all of the, uh, the questions and the concepts in both directions. And we could just think in, essentially think in each other's brains. So you don't need to bother with the podcasts and stuff. I mean, everything becomes obsolete. Communication, yeah. learning, you know, why, why go to school anymore, Ian, if we sure. can just upload information? Why work? I mean, everything, society, I think, breaks down. And, and I want to return, you mentioned uh, the fear of death and, and uh, potential for digital afterlife. I want to come back to that uh, later on. But I know that, you know, the life extension is just one of many predictions you make for yeah. the world in 2050. I want to go through uh, a bunch of them. And yeah. for each of these predictions, it would be helpful if you could provide almost like a confidence rating on a scale of one to 10, how confident you are about each of these. Sounds good to me. All right. So the first one that, that you that you listed, which is really interesting, was you talk about the toilet in, of the future, that in 30 years from now, all toilets will be equipped with mini laboratories, which produce chemical analysis of the feces. If there's deviation from the norm, they would recommend the owner see a doctor. So, so, so what are you basing this off of? 
Well, th those sorts of toilets already exist in, 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 in small quantities in Japan and South Korea and so on. Some people have uh, these uh, special toilets. And certainly in the lab, you can do a lot of different kinds of tests based on your effluent and, and so on. Uh, I don't think everybody would use them, uh, but it, it kind of like people buy smart bathroom scales that tell you your body fat and stuff. Some of us just buy ones that tell you how many, how many pounds you weigh. So uh, it, it, it's, it's a market thing, really. I think that I've got almost 100% confidence that some of these will be available on the market should you want to buy them. I've got uh, absolute confidence that not everybody will want to buy them and only a few people probably will buy them. So maybe you might find 10, 15, 20% uh, of the population who are health nuts uh, will buy these sorts of things. Most people don't care that much and they will just carry on their lives. If something serious happens to their health, they're going to notice it anyway. They don't need a full rundown on their health prospects every time they go to the toilet. So huh. most people won't bother, but a few health nuts, you know, we all know people that are paranoid about their health. They'll go out and buy them. And so that's their choice. Well, my father, if he's listening to this, is, is probably uh, heading to uh, to WebMD or, or eBay, wherever he can buy uh, install <laughs> one of these toilets. Um, but so, what would be your your confidence rating for that one? Would that be I a would 10? say hundred percent confidence that okay. they exist and you'd be able to buy them, and zero uh, percent confidence that everybody will have one. Uh, I would say it is much more likely that some people will have them and most people won't. Okay, so toilet of the future is is almost a, a, a definite. Uh, it's a definite possibility in your mind. And then yeah. uh, one that I found really interesting, and you're not the only futurist that predicts this, is you predict that in 2050, sexual contact between a person and a, and a robot will occur more frequently than between two people. So what's going on there? Yeah, I think the... the the, the basic uh, technology behind that, a lot of people are working on, on various forms of sex robots. I mean, they're just robots that have got sexual functions. And uh, the reason I think it might become more popular is because we have some social trends which are putting barriers between people anyway at the moment. But most importantly, the robot would be able to do better than a human being. And I'll explain where I'm coming from. I mentioned earlier the concept of active skin, where you can link electronics direct to your nervous system and you can start uh, measuring the, uh, the electrical signals going across those nerves. What that allows you to do is to record sensations and to replay sensations. And you can do that on any part of your body. So for sexual sensations, you could record the best sex you've ever had. And some future point, you can replay that. So when you're having sex with a human being in 2050, it'll be like having sex with a human being. When you're having sex with an android, it'll be essentially able to replay the best sex you've ever had. So um, it'll be able to reproduce all of those fantastic sensations and to also to measure what's happening in your nervous system at the moment and to adjust its behavior to basically optimize your response. So the, the Android can tap into your emotional state, your nervous system state and optimize its performance to make it absolutely the best possible experience for you, far better than a human being. And you know, mm. when a human being has sex, you have to guess how the partner's feeling to some degree. You can tell you know, if they're making the right noises, you're doing the right sort of thing, but uh. it won't be quite as good as the instantaneous high, high level accuracy that you're gonna get in an Android. So what I'm really saying is that 
if you, if you can buy an Android and you bought it anyway because it's doing the housework, but it also has a sex function, if the Android can give you far better sex than any human being, you're going to use this more often than a woman uses their vibrator or something <laughs> at the moment. It's going to give them super sex. So you know that's that's basically where this prediction comes from. Right, so I would right. have high confidence that you can do that. Uh, maybe ninety uh, percent uh, confidence that you could. Uh, produce an android by 2050 which has got superior sex performance to a human being and a lot of people if they've got enough money will go out and buy these and they will sleep around with them quite happily and i don't think there'll be any um, ethical issues with them doing that i think those will all be history well it's, it's interesting i mean it, it might be uh sort of like a, a pragmatic alternative to, to prostitution i know that the sure. the sex trade is is uh is a serious problem something you don't hear a lot about in the in, in the western media um and this uh, on that front this might be uh expeditious but i will say you know for folks listening I, I do think there's like multiple dimensions to sex. You know, you talk about how it, it might be more efficient, I guess, like might be a better like physical experience, but you know, some folks, obviously if you're in like long-term relationships, if they're married, it's not just about the, you know, the sensation of achieving an orgasm that that's the, the purpose of sex. It's also about like building, um, you know, a, a stronger connection and, and more emotional intimacy. Do you really think robots can, can, you know, fill that aspect of it as well? Well, I think the the best way to think of it is even today, you know, a, a, a woman might own some sex toys, some own several different sex toys, and they use those whatever frequency they want, but they still might have relationships with human beings. And as you say, they might have a very deeply emotional relationship with a human being. Uh, they might be deeply in love with their spouse, but they might still use those sex toys sometimes as well. And that's how I think we will use androids. I don't think it will be for most people an alternative uh, as a replacement for a human being. It'll be alongside. So you'll have sex with humans, but you'll also have sex with the android. But when you have sex with the android, it feels much better. So if that's all you want is, is the sexual uh, sensations, you go with the android, but you still will have sex with the people you love uh, because you want to have that deep emotional bond with them as well. And the sex is very important in that. So uh, okay. that's kind of where we're going with that. But so the, it would be like a, uh, a high high price sex toy. <laughs> it is essentially a high price sex toy, but we're thinking about uh, this is basically something which is fairly cheap to add to your Android that you're probably going to buy to do the housework and look after your house as well anyway. So you're going to you're going to spend uh, thirty forty thousand dollars on a on an Android to, to work around the house. You might as well make it uh, look pretty by getting its face three D printed to look like your favorite celebrity, and uh, you can also go to bed with it for a few hundred dollars extra as well. So uh, the extra cost of, of, of the sexual response would be fairly trivial compared to the cost of buying the Android that you're going to buy anyway. It's interesting. I actually did another episode. Um, I had a friend on who's also an engineer, and we talked about the future of automation and AI. And the, the uh, concept of futuristic sex also came up. And we, we were discussing how in some countries, in, in Japan, for example, they have um, extremely sophisticated sex, uh, sex robots, sex dolls, mm. I don't know what you want to call it, um, that you can purchase uh, for, I don't know, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. Um, so it would be, from what you're saying, it sounds like it would be sort of that model, but mass produced. And they would also be, rather than just like an, an inanimate doll, it would be like, like an android that could speak to you and communicate with you um, during, during that experience. Yeah, and by 2050, the uh, 
the speaking to you bit, you, you've got to be thinking in terms of 2050 AI, this is going to be fully conversational. It'll recognize everything you're talking about. It'll be able to respond emotionally uh, in the same way as a human being, pretty much. So you'll be able to make a real relationship with the androids that you'll have around you in 2050. It won't be like uh, treating like a washing machine or a dishwasher. Uh, there'll be very much uh, personalities like uh, like you see on Star Wars or in Star Trek. Mm. Uh, you have a conversation with Commander Data or with C-3PO. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, you, 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 you can have a relationship with them. So it might not be the same relationship as you have with a human being, but it still can be emotional and it can be very deep relationship. The, 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 you might trust your uh, personal android better than you trust most people. So it could be a very deep relationship whether it'll be as far as love i don't know in the 2050 time frame at some point in the future you should be able to replicate that sort of thing but i don't know whether we'll be at that point in 2050 yeah i don't know if, if too many people are going to want to have sex with c3po just to be just to be honest I, I, with you. I, I never know which one's which with <laughs> no c3po is the almost like the, the maternal not not on my top 10 list no. <laughs> <laughs> um I, and just the idea of falling in love with ai i mean I make a lot of movie references of this pod just because just because I'm a, a film buff. But did you ever see the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix where he falls in love with with the AI played by Scarlett Johansson? I haven't seen that one. I right, add that one to your list. It's um, better than Transcendence, but he falls yeah. in love with the um, with the AI. But she's she's uh, incorporeal, so she doesn't exist in reality. She's just the voice, like a Siri. Uh, so that's yeah. really interesting. I mean, I certainly uh, look looking at. Uh, TV like Westworld. I mean, I, yeah, I did course. some stuff on Westworld a few years ago. Uh, the, the way that they produce the robots on there, where they start with a basic skeleton and they use 3D printing to uh, to make the muscles so that these they look and feel pretty much like the real thing. I think that's very much the kind of robots that we're talking about here. We're looking at something which is going to be uh, 3D printed, which will have the same sorts of uh, muscular structures as a human being, would feel the same way to cuddle as a human being, but we'll also be able to respond emotionally in the same way as the robots on, on, on Westworld appear to do. So right. you really will not be able to tell the difference between them and the real thing if you know when they get to a certain level of technology. And that level could be here by 2050. It's interesting. So, so, so I love Westworld. That's one of my, one of my all time sure. favorite shows. And, um, in one of the scenes in one of the first few episodes, when William enters Westworld, he's, he meets a woman and it might've been Angela. I can't remember. And he says, are you real or are you a robot? And she responds, uh, if you can't tell, does it, does it matter? If you can't tell the difference, does it matter? And I think, I think you're right. I think physically I can imagine the robots 3d printed being indistinguishable from humans. It's just emotionally and, and intellect intellectually, would they be able to pass like the touring test? Would, you know, would, 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 uh, uh, a third party be able to speak to a robot and not know that it was a robot and conclude that it was a human. I don't know. I mean, you, you certainly you are the expert here. I don't know if we're going to be there in 30 years. Yeah, I think uh, there are different branches of AI and the sort of things that people are playing with today, uh, where it's very much a digital form of algorithmic uh, digital AI, even the neural network stuff is, 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 is still digital. Um, I, I, I'm not sure whether that is really going to be able to make anything other than synthetic emotions. It'll pretend to be emotional the same way as a chatbot does, but it won't be really emotional. Uh, I think, uh, though, a long time ago, uh, we, we, the idea of going back towards analog computing came back in and the 
I, I think if we use analog neural networks and adaptive analog neural networks, it's possible to do different kinds of AI where it's fundamentally capable of, of being conscious. So you could have an AI kind of like Commander Data on Star Trek, which isn't uh, just a synthetic uh, pretending to be AI, it's it's the real thing. It's actually a genuine intelligent organism in its own right. So that's a different kind of AI than we currently have. We can't do that yet, but we should be able to do that by 2050. And I think that's kind of the thing which you would want to have in your Android. You would want to have an Android which you could have a deep emotional bond and know that the robot cares about you as well. Not right. just that it makes the right sort of comments that it's downloaded off some spreadsheet, but it's actually genuinely feeling what it's saying it's feeling and in the same way as you are. So it's kind of like a little bit alien because it's an Android, but it's, it's definitely a conscious being in its own right. We need that and we should be able to get that by 2050. That's re it's really interesting when you think about sort of like like what you know not only what are the components of consciousness but how would you how would you even like demonstrate that that we could have a whole other conversation on that I I want to sort of uh, pivot away from robots for a moment and talk about transportation sure. because you forecast that in 2050 hypersonic planes will be able to transport uh, travel between major cities and some hypersonic trains too. Uh, hi, the, uh, the Hyperloop, uh, it would be a descendant of the Hyperloop. This is something I've read a little bit about, but for those who aren't familiar with hypersonic travel, how does it work? Well, the, the concept of the Hyperloop, looking at the train one first, is you've got a big long tube and you take most of the air out of that tube so you can reduce the air resistance. And then you propel the train through that at very high speeds. I mean, we're talking uh, five, six, 700 miles per hour. So you can go supersonic down this uh, uh, tube in principle. And that's called the Hyperloop. It's Elon Musk's idea. But the basic idea goes back a hundred years to uh, you know way back the early uh, 20th century. And uh, back then they realized they could make a tunnel across the Atlantic and you could use uh, compressed air to send trains through it. And so it's basically the same idea. Uh, the Hyperloop uses in, in inductive technologies. You use basically magnets to make the thing going very, very fast, a bit like on the Japanese bullet trains. When you get rid of the air from the tube, it, it, it's possible to go very, very quickly. Now, there are big problems with doing that. The biggest problem is potential terrorism. All somebody has to do is to put a small bomb on the outside of that uh, tube. And they, obviously, when it fractures, it's going to cause a massive grit. A dense wall of air that the that the train is going to hit at very high speed and everybody inside that train would probably get killed so you don't want that kind of thing to happen and so I'm a bit a bit skeptical as to how much we're going to see hyperloops going at ridiculously high speeds inside this simply because of the security threat but in principle you can do it when you're talking about hypersonic airliners there's several different ways of doing that you can either make things with very powerful engines which currently are being designed and some of those engines are using very clever uh, technologies and they will go several times the speed of sound. And some of those are even being used as a way of getting into space. So you, you get the up to quite high speed using those motors and then you maybe use a rocket for the last, uh, last bit to get the, uh, the last few kilometers per hour. And so this hypersonic air travel is, is possible around the world. I came up with a, a a more fun way of doing this, which is kind of like using the same technology as Hyperloop, but in the air. So if you imagine having the same sort of linear induction uh, mat that you have inside a Hyperloop that propels the train using magnetic forces, 
There's nothing to stop you doing that in the high atmosphere, providing you've got a floating platform. So it turns out you can actually make material which is about the same density as helium, but which is very, very strong. So you could make a track up in the high atmosphere, you know, too high up to see it really. Uh, you might see a glimmer or something off it, but uh, it wouldn't be very conspicuous. So we're talking 50, 60, 70,000 feet high, maybe even 100,000 feet high, and it would float that high in the atmosphere. And the top bit of it can be solar panels and the underside of it can be linear induction mat. And that allows you to have a sled going along that propelled by electricity and, and magnetism. And there's no, almost no atmosphere. So there's very, very little resistance. So you can go hypersonic speeds across that. So you could be basically dragging hypersonic gliders around these tracks around the world. So that's a, a, a very futuristic way of doing hyperloop I, up in the sky, basically. I mean, how would you even, I'm, I'm trying to visualize what you're describing, like, like the gliding around the sky and building sleds through major countries yeah. that, that sounds like it would take like centuries of development and construction and cost like trillions of dollars i mean what, what kind of expense would that be it wouldn't be that expensive you're talking about uh, these uh, lines would be basically one or two meters wide they don't need to be very big and uh, you can manufacture the the mats at ground level or you can manufacture them up there it doesn't make any difference but they wouldn't be expensive i mean you're basically making these things out of very very light foam uh, which would be not very expensive at all. The top bit, uh, solar panels, uh, they'd be cheaper than solar panels today, a lot cheaper than solar panels today. So that wouldn't really cost very much. And the thing that you're trading against is the massive expense of making airplanes with enormously expensive engines and enormously expensive fuel. So you're not trading against something which is free. You're trading uh, something which is quite expensive to build versus something which is already very expensive to use, which we can't carry on using because of climate change and things like that. So it's a... Uh, the economics allow you to do that. And it wouldn't take as long as you think to make this. The tracks are really quite, quite thin. You can make a very long piece of track in a factory very, very quickly indeed. So I'm just floating them up there. So it's not that difficult really to, to do it. Add a little bit of robotics onto that to sort of fix, fix them together and you're there. So I don't think it's beyond the, the weight of 2050 technology to have that kind of linear induction lines up in the sky. And you don't need to build it all at once. You can just build a line between these two cities and then you add another city and then you add a, a bit more and a bit more and you can grow organically until you've got a, a major network like you have with airline travel today. Wow, I mean, this is that that would completely revolutionize traveling around the world. It would make, we're, I mean, we're talking the difference between, um, you know, maybe like a, a 20 hour flight from New York to Sydney, Australia to what, like a couple of hours? Yeah, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. And it's uh, bearing in mind that this is entirely electric. It's all solar powered as well. So there's no pollution from this. Uh, apart from any pollution you might get making the actual materials. But uh, once it's actually deployed, it's just running purely on electricity provided by solar panels. And what, those solar panels are also producing loads of spare electricity that can also be beamed down to the, uh, the planet's surface to be used uh, for the rest of what we do down here as well. So we're replacing something which is uh, very polluting with something which is completely clean, but which is still hypersonic travel. You can still do that ridiculously fast travel, uh, you know, a few thousand miles per hour uh, between uh, A and B. And this is, just to clarify, this is the same thing. I saw a video on YouTube a year or two ago. I think it was SpaceX or, or one of the Musk companies where it was a almost like a rocket taking off hmm. from the ground and it was landing 
it was like going from, uh, you know, like California to China and it was launching like a rocket would, but it wasn't actually exiting the atmosphere and it was landing in China. Is that something different or is that the hypersonic air travel? It's different. The, 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 uh, that approach really relies on, on, on rocketry getting up to very, very high speed and then going into uh, basically a sub- suborbital uh, travel, not quite into full orbit, but just suborbital and uh, going basically through the very, very low levels of space. And that's, that is a bit different because it's, it, it's not relying on this line of uh, solar panels to fly along. It's basically using rocket uh, technology to get up there. Okay. And what, the problem with doing that is that you're then shoving out uh, enormous amounts of, of some sort of uh, output into the atmosphere. Now, to, today we worry about carbon dioxide, but water vapor is also a big problem in terms of warming. It's actually more of a warming gas than CO2. So when you put water into the atmosphere, of course, it eventually will come down as rain, but it can stay there for a very, very long period up in the high atmosphere where it can cause warming for several weeks or months afterwards. And that is a problem. So we really shouldn't be using uh, more rocketry than we need to because it's dumping vast quantities of water vapor way up high in the atmosphere Got and that you. can cause some major problems with climate. So we shouldn't be doing that any more than we have to. And I, I, I'm not a believer in this, uh, you know, millions of, of rockets flying all over the planet. Uh, it, it, you know, it, 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 it doesn't seem to me like that's going to be feasible, but doing it using these, uh, um, these tracks, you could do that and that would not be polluting and it produces vast quantities of uh, uh, very cheap energy as well. Got it. So, so your confidence rating for that would be what for the hypersonic travel? Well, it depends how you measure it because you could do it, uh, but on the other hand, nobody's actually doing it yet. So, uh, you, you got a guess in there, not the guess on whether the technology is feasible, which it is, but whether anybody's going to actually bother to do it, uh, which is a different thing. You know, that's whether there's some six-year-old growing up in Argentina who's going to be the sort of next generation's Elon Musk, who's going to take advantage of this. Uh, uh, market opportunity and do something like that. Uh, you know, how do you predict that? How do you give a level of certainty on whether some entrepreneur is going to bother to do this? That's very uncertain. Right. So in terms of technology, yes, you could do it. In terms of whether it's going to happen, anybody's guess. Got it. Difficult to quantify. All right. So, so something else uh, you predict, which is interesting, is the idea of 3D printed fast food, uh, you know, like, like burgers yeah. or pizza, providing, you know, like a convenience food, providing basic nutrition and survival, but not necessarily like gourmet cuisine. I, I can hmm. see this happening. I'll be honest with you. Well, it's already happening. There's already a few uh, bur- burger bars out there that do these sort of uh, 3D printed uh, burgers, basically. And what, what they're doing is they're using uh, cultivated meat where you take a few meat cells and you grow them in a test tube. Well, not test tube, but a great big vat and you grow them rather than growing them on a cow. So instead of having a cow wandering around the field, you take the same sorts of meat cells that a, that a cow is made of and you cultivate those in a factory uh, without a cow ever happening. And it's sort of meat-free meat because it's uh, you don't have the ethical issues of whether you want to kill an animal. There's nothing to kill, it's just uh, cells. So you cultivate all of these cells and you produce this vast quantity of goo and then you 3D print that into whatever it is you want to make. And the the companies working in this field are getting very, very good at replicating the same textures 
and the same, even the same sort of tissue structures that exist in, in, in real meat. So they can produce something which is like a steak or they can produce something more like a chop. Uh, so you can get the different kinds of, of meat. If you're just doing burgers and sausages, you know, any kind of meat really is going to work. So those things we will see. Now, whether it gets to high cuisine in any particular year is anybody's guess, but you know we certainly already have uh, the technology to produce this uh, vegetarian meat, if you want to call it that, uh, which a lot of people will want to do that for ethical reasons. They would like to be a vegetarian, but they like to eat bacon and they like to have a nice steak. So they don't really want to be vegetarian, but uh, th th this uh, new cultured meat will allow them to not have to kill any animals, but they can still have their nice steak. And I think a lot of people will go for that. And the 3D printing is really neither here nor there. Whether you use a, a factory machine to make it or use a 3D printer is really personal choice and you, you know, either will work fine. Yeah, because the thing is, and, and I, you know, we've talked about veganism a lot on the pod and, and uh, about um, eating cultured meats like grown from genetically mm. modified uh, stem cells, sure. things like that. The, to me, that that's not 3D printing. I, I mean, I don't know a lot about 3D printing, but I'm, I'm imagining like late, like, you know, lasers generating uh, a three-dimensional object. So is that, is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about actually growing these cultured meats in a laboratory? What's the distinction? Uh, there is a distinction, but both of them are feasible. And uh, I think the, the growing the meat in a laboratory is, is fine. You could actually just sit and, you know, just grow it. Or another way of doing it is to basically grow it in a, a vat full of uh, slurry where you just grow these things and then you strain out the cells and fabricate them into whatever uh, shapes you want. And that would just be normal food technologies producing that. The 3D printer is interesting because a lot of people like the idea of 3D printing where you just start off with this, uh, these tubes of paste that you buy in your supermarket and you can produce any kind of, of thing in your kitchen. I'm much more skeptical whether that's going to be a thing. You know, yes, you can do it in principle, but I don't think it's going to be a very big share of the market. I think that when you have a 3D printer in your kitchen, you're probably going to use it for making the intricate flowers to put on a wedding cake or to make fancy shaped sweets for your kids for the school lunch. But you probably won't use it to print a pizza or to print a steak. You could, but you probably won't. Uh, you're probably going to buy the steak manufactured in a factory in some big machine, which is using slurry, which is using this cultured meat. So uh, in terms of market penetration, the cultured meat is going to be 90, 95%. And the 3D printing is going to be very niche markets mm. for particular things, in my view. And what would be your, your confidence rating for that? Uh, pretty high. Uh, you will be able to buy... Uh, cultured meats uh, fairly routinely in your supermarket. Uh, in fact, on probably more than 50% of the meats that you might buy might be cultured by by 2050. I give you, you know, 80, 90% confidence on that. Okay. Um, you also talk about robotic pets a lot um, and sure. how I, I, we've spoken about robots quite a bit, but how robotic pets will replace domesticated animals for many people because they're far easier to look after yeah. uh, for owners with busy lives. I have a, a puppy sleeping at my feet right now should should she be worried along with the other puppies of the world that that dogs and cats are going to be obsolete in the face of robotic pets uh it's 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 a really fun subject this one because uh, yeah 
for, firstly, you can you can do the robotic pets. You know, I mean, it's a long, long time since Sony made their Ibo. I, I used to have one of those, and kids already did form emotional bonds. I took my Ibo to a school, uh, primary school, with so six, seven, eight-year-old kids, and I showed them this thing. And unfortunately, it was it was its last day of life. I took Abo out of its bag and I switched it on. And it stood up, went through all of its stretching exercises, and then it keeled over and died. And it never oh. worked again. And the kids in the classroom cried, even though this is just a piece of metal. And you know, even in those few minutes, it formed an emotional bond with that Ebo. So it's possible to form an emotional bond with a robotic pet. And uh, kids do naturally form emotional bonds, even with teddy bears, just you mm -hmm. know, pieces of stuffed fabric. So we know that that's uh, uh, a thing and we, we, we can make robotic pets which will wander around and people will form bonds. And if you give them enough artificial intelligence and if you give them enough agility, uh, you know, the premium models should be able to jump and run and do acrobatic tricks, they could be really good fun. And of course you could talk to them because uh, you can put a, a link a uh, microphone in there can be linked to the cloud and you can get the full weight of AI from the cloud responding to whatever it is you're saying to the pet. So your pet could, if you wanted to, you could make it talk to you. So it might just respond with a bark or a meow or it might respond in everyday English and you could just talk to it. <laughs> And, and then it gets interesting even more because with the direct brain technology that we're developing to do this electronic immortality stuff, imagine connecting that to the little robotic pet. Imagine giving your pet dog, a real pet dog, imagine mm. giving it a brain implant, which allows it to speak to you uh. by using, using some sort of speaker. It hasn't got the vocal cords to speak, but it's got, you could use a speaker attached to its collar, uh, which would allow it to speak back to you. But so, at that point, Ian, it's not a pet. I mean, what, you know, then it's just another uh, uh, assistant device, like a, a Siri or Alexa, that's going to tell you the weather, right? If it's smart enough, could be your boss. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, I, I think there's something, you know, uh, there's something innately uh, warm and, and comforting about a pet that's, that's for lack of a better word, that's, that's uh, dumb. And that just sort yeah. of has a very simple minded that just wants to eat, sleep and cuddle with you. I don't think absolutely. I, I, I no. really do not think that these are in direct competition with each other. I don't think the existence of robotic pets will make us not want to have real ones. But I think, as you mentioned yourself, a lot of us have got very busy lives. If you've got a pet dog and you want to go away on two weeks holiday, you've got to find somebody to look after it. You've got to stick it in a kennel. It's got all sorts of problems because the, the pet's separated from you for those two weeks. So it's emotionally stressed as well. Is it really fair to have a pet if you live in a, a in a flat in a big city and you've got nowhere to exercise it? There are lots of reasons why people might want to have a robotic pet. Uh, but the people who want to have real pets and have got nice back gardens and can afford to spend the time with it, you know, they should really still have their real pets and they'll probably still enjoy those very rich emotional relationships. Some of people just can't they, they can't fit that into their lives for whatever reason. And for them, the robotic pets will provide a very good uh, substitute. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I, I guess your point ethically, I think if you live in a, a tiny apartment in New York city, it's, you know, it's probably better to have 
an Android dog, um, even one that maybe looks like a real dog, but isn't a real dog, as opposed to a real dog that you're leaving alone in an apartment for 12 hours, just, you know, to do less harm to a living thing. But I I agree with you. I don't don't see this catching on for most people. And and, and once you go down that road, you know, you think, well, why buy the robotic cat or a robotic dog? Why not have a robotic Furby? You know, we all had Furbies 10, 15 years ago. Or, uh, you know, why not make an organic real Furby, if you wanted to do the opposite, you know, people who have cats and dogs by 2050, genetic engineering might allow us to make real life Furbies that can actually talk to you and uh, like look like Furbies and walk around and do Furby type things. Uh, you can go both directions. Biology is progressing just as fast as AI and robotics is progressing. So you should be able to have a, a world in which you can go either way with, with this kind of technology. And I- y- you can instrument all sorts of social lives for your electronic pets and things as well so <laughs> you, you, you can go the whole way and well, spielberg's but- film ai he had a, a little cute teddy bear mm-hmm. in there as well as the robotic kid and the gigolo he had the teddy bear so you know why not have a teddy bear wandering around again well, you could do that as a robot or as a biological entity i will say i mean you know we talked about star wars earlier i think if you had like like an r2d2 that's the one that just beeps you know it's yeah. cute it's cute to have around but i, I would right. characterize that as more of a friend than a pet i think there's something to the connotation of pet like you know uh it's your servant and the pet answers to you you're its master so i think robotic friends ian i could see that i mean we talked sure. about sex robots we haven't talked about companion robots mm-hmm. i could see robot androids as friends and companions more so than robotic pets yeah, and the one of the big motivations for producing the android robots was for companionship. The Japanese started all of this going 20, 30 years ago when they realized they had a demographic problem in Japan that there was going to be an awful lot of old people and far too young people to look uh, to, to look after them in their old age. So they were going to need to make robotic uh, Android kind of uh, things that could keep them companions uh, in their in their old age, look after them and to, to some degree, but also provide the companionship. And that's where that whole idea started, really. Uh, mm. it, it wasn't really functional uh, androids. It was really the companionship androids that started off as the main goal. And I think that is very laudable as a goal even now. Uh, a lot of people are very lonely and for whatever reasons, they're not able to make uh, human relationships. You know, we should try and fix that, of course, but for a lot of people, it just doesn't work out for whatever reasons. Maybe they might be susceptible to having good relationships with an android. Maybe it will solve those real human problems for some people who normal human relations just don't work. Oh yeah, I mean, I I I definitely agree with you. I think there's there's a lot of utility. And again, look at you know the Jap the Japanese being ahead of the times, realizing mm. this 23 years ago. So your confidence rating for robotic pets is is where? Oh, nearly a hundred. I would okay. say that we definitely have robotic pets. Gotcha. Uh, I've already had two, so and I'd be quite happy to buy more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I, I want to briefly uh, touch on just two more of your predictions, both of which are are actually quite disturbing. The first one, there's been a lot written about, and that's the idea of e babies, where people can create uh, a baby by combining their DNA with that of another person and choosing between billions of potential combinations to make that real. Uh, what's you know what, what's going on there for people that aren't familiar with it? Yeah, this this idea came from a a, a, a conference I did uh, it must be about twenty years ago, and I was talking to another futurist called Amy Oberg, and we had this uh, idea that um, 
you know, people might not want to get together for whatever reason, but they might still be able to have babies. And I thought, yeah, this is quite a fun idea. So if you've got a listing of your DNA and somebody else has got a listing of their DNA, there is nothing to stop you on your laptop uh, from blending these DNA things together to make almost an infinite number of potential children that you could theoretically have if you were to go to bed with this other person. So even without bothering to go to bed or even being in the same continent, you can blend your DNA on the computer uh, in terms of just DNA listing with anybody else. And you can make as many of those listings as possible. That's interesting because at some point in the future, you will be able to assemble that DNA for real. So you could make a real embryo with those exact uh, DNA listing. Uh, so you could theoretically take your e-baby uh, and you could make it real. The reason we called it e-baby was because of eBay. We realized that when you got two celebrities who everybody adores uh, and they decide to make this theoretical uh, babies together, they can make a collection of these e-babies and trade them on, on eBay. Oh my and God. In, in principle, you know, there's nothing to stop you doing that on eBay. Any two celebrities today could get their DNA listed and they could blend them together to make some potential offspring DNA listings. And they could trade those if they wanted to make collectibles of what happens if you, this celeb meets that celeb. This is your potential baby. So you can collect that. You can buy two for uh, $20. And uh, there you are. So you're completely tradable. Um, babies, basically, and these could be assembled and made real at some point in the far future. So it, we, we, we presented this idea because of the, the sheer horrifying nature of that idea that you're not allowed to trade real children and babies, fortunately, on eBay, but there's nothing to stop you trading the potential listings for a future baby on eBay. And we thought this is a loophole which needs to be closed because we can already see this causing problems. Oh my gosh. I mean, look, there, uh, th there's a lot to unpack there. I'll, I'll oh, yeah. say, I'll say this, uh, out of everything that you list, uh, th th that, that we've discussed and that you list as a, a potential future event, this to me seems like the most preposterous. I, I can't even imagine the regulatory hurdles to something like this. I mean, you, you look at designer babies, just, you know, picking the eye color of your embryo or the hair color, and you look at all of the ethical um, and, and political objections to that. I just, I can't see people being on board with this. And it just seems like and it seems like what we're doing is we're devaluing diversity and, and our differences. If everyone, you know, can pick and choose the DNA of their baby and create this beautiful symmetrical face and, and uh, this perfect looking baby, every, every baby is going to look more or less the same, no? I don't think they all look the same because we don't all have the same favorite celebs. Um, but, but they're going to be so, they're going to be really attractive. They're going to they're going to yeah, have similar they'll, features. They'll, they'll all have two hundred IQs. They'll all be able to run uh, hundred meters in five seconds, and you know they'll all be perfect uh, people. I, I I don't know if we would do that, but you know it is certainly full to the brim with enormously horrifying ethical problems, and we should have regulation to stop it. But even twenty years later, twenty twenty one, we still don't have any regulations stopping. Uh, me and you from trading half of our DNA listings and making some potential babies during this podcast. And we could trade those on eBay, you know, one free with every person that listens to this podcast. No, <laughs> we shouldn't do that. Please don't. I don't want to do this. Let's I, not go down that road. Let's make some regulations to stop anybody else going down that road. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. So I'm a uh, I'm a law student. I I think I mentioned to you, and and I've taken um a bunch of courses on intellectual property and and uh, ownership and the idea of like, do we own our genetic material? And there is actually jurisprudence. There are cases um like Moore, for example, uh, where the person you know person was said to own their cell line, said to own their their cell tissue and their DNA. So I think um based on my knowledge. If, if this becomes more, you know, more of like a hot button issue, there is, uh, you know, there is a sort of loose precedent for it. Mm. Um, but to your point, there, there hasn't been a ton of pushback. But I think that's also in part because not a lot of people are doing it with with designer babies. I know with e-babies, sure. they're, they're not trading the material, but but I haven't seen a lot of people actually shopping to create a, a, a baby yeah, we, we haven't seen it yet. No, it, it's quite surprising because it is possible now. You can get a DNA listing for a few thousand dollars. You can get your full listing. Uh, so, you know, why have we not got people doing this already? I don't know, but it's, uh, it is already possible and it should be illegal. Uh, maybe, as you say, you've, you've got the embryonic laws that could be adapted mm -hmm. to make it so. But, uh, you know, the, the regulation needs to catch up with, with what's already possible. And let's face it, you know, at some point in the very far future, you'll be able to simulate these babies as well. You'll be able to oh you know, take your 10,000 listings that look the best, uh, see what these would look like, you know, you sort of simulate what the molecular dynamics of that DNA would end up uh, producing in terms of physicality of the, of the offspring. Uh, pick the ones you like the look of and give them this, that, and the other personalities. Uh, design this bit, design that bit, and push uh, print, and off goes your uh, first uh, implantable embryo. Ian, I don't know. I don't know if you have any children. Um, I do. I've got uh, one of my own and two adopted, uh, two uh, in-law ones. So I don't. I don't have any. I have any kids myself? But I'd imagine uh, at some point when I have children, sort of the beauty of having a child <clears throat> is creating something like with with um, you know with another person and and sort of like going through the natural process of making a life and you just lose all of that by, you know, going on eBay or whatever, whatever this forum is and yeah. shopping for a baby, like you would buy, you know, an overcoat. So absolutely. We, we, we really should not go down that road, but you know, we're on such a, a free run with our, our morality. It's just uh, whatever was yesterday plus 10% seems to be tomorrow. We're on a random walk. We don't seem to have an ethical uh, foundation of any of any robustness mm. on which to build a future. We can see these problems, but who's to say we might not go down that road? Uh, so they might think it's a great idea in 2045, 2050, 2060. Who knows? I mean, but, it's, it's uh, a dark, today it sounds horrifying. Dark possibility. So what would be your, your confidence rating there? Uh, in terms of technical feasibility, it's yeah. guaranteed. You could certainly do it. Uh, whether we're going to allow it, I would say 50%. I think mm. uh, if wise minds look at the problems and regulate against it, they might have some good success. But looking at the quality of leadership that we managed to put all around in our respective countries, I'm not convinced that the quality of leaders we've currently got is capable of, of dealing properly with this uh, this kind of problem. So I'd, I'd only give it 50% mm. uh, chance of, of happening, but it's uh, you know it should be 0%. Should be. Yeah. But 50, 50 sounds, uh, that sounds yeah. accurate to me. Um, yeah. So the last prediction I, I want to ask you about is, is I want to, you know, end this conversation where we started it in talking about a digital afterlife. We spoke about mm. life extension. You mentioned that a lot of people um, are grappling with a fear of death right now, a recognition of their own mortality. And aside from the uploading consciousness, 
aspect that we talked about with, you know, having an, uh, an Android as a body and prolonging your life there, there are, there are talks. And I know you've written about this of actually creating a, a digital afterlife where people, where people's minds will go when they die. Um, so for folks that aren't familiar with that, how would that work? It's, it's possible to make uh, uh, brain extension either in uh, using the IT in the cloud, you can link that to your brain to provide extension to your, to your brain. And you could live in that, or you could live just inside the cloud, essentially be an electronic uh, brain in a jar inside the cloud somewhere. And there's nothing to stop you replicating your mind as often as you like once you're in there. So you could make a whole stack of a huge population of of electronic beings, just like yourself, if you so desired. Now, this uh, all, all the possibilities in there are so appealing to some people that they're desperate to go down this road. A lot of people want to build this kind of technology. So there may well be some way of, of, of making uh, storage uh, facilities that allow you to carry on existing for centuries after your body has died, uh, but carrying on with the same mind or multiplying your mind by you know, thousands of times, if you so desire, you could create lots of facilities in there. You could create all sorts of virtual reality for those exactly. uh, minds to to live in when they're not in the real world. So they might spend some of the time in an Android walking around doing real stuff. Uh, but most of the time they might be stuck in the cloud for environmental footprint reasons or whatever. So what are they going to do when they're there? They, you provide them with uh, the virtual swimming pools and the virtual uh, casinos or whatever it is they enjoy uh, doing. And they can do as much of that as they like in the virtual world, because it's just, as far as the computer's concerned, it's just imagination. And they can link to each other and they could have the Borg if they so desire. Uh, there's enormous recreational possibilities in there. But in that world, you can even do a sort of time travel because you can make a, mm -hmm. a, a backup of the whole system every few minutes if you want, just like you make backups of your computer. And you could do that snapshot for the entire population of these electronically immortal beings. So you could do that as often as you want and say it starts in 2050, jump ahead to 2150, 100 years later, uh, there's nothing to stop somebody in 2150 having a conversation with that same mind that was stored in 2050. So they've got a form of electronic time travel where you can travel back to the very first day that this was implemented because all of the minds snapshots have, have been backed up ever since then. So you've got enormous number of replicas essentially of, of society backed up every few minutes uh, to eternity where you can just top, travel backwards and forwards in, in that virtual timeline. Now it's not real time travel, it's just moving between the, the memory and this machine, but it, it would feel like time travel if, if you were doing it. Okay, so I'm imagining, based on what you just described with virtual facilities, almost like the TV show Upload, if you saw that, or the Black Mirror episode San Junipero, where it's almost like another reality that people live in, where you have, like in the show Upload, it's like they're living in a resort. And one room, there's like a pool, and there's a game room and a cafeteria, and people are just going about their lives like like in the, the, the game The Sims, um, and they're living there eternally in that in that sort of world. But then I wonder, you know, is that even reality? And, and you know, we could talk about this for hours, like metaphysically, it, like, like, is that, is it real? If, if someone's just sitting in, uh, someone's mind is sitting in the cloud and they're, like you said, imagining going through these virtual experiences, it, it just doesn't sound real to me. Well, it's a different kind of reality, isn't it? Because uh, to the person inside that 
universe that you've created, it is real experiences. They're doing those things and they're experiencing the same things as they would have done in the real world if they'd done them for real. So their mind would still respond the same way. They would still grow, still get the same memories. So in one sense, it is reality, but it's uh, obviously it's, it's, it's in a different kind of universe than the, 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 the physical reality we live in today. So you're creating an alternative virtual universe really for these people to live in. But in some sense, it's still real because they're experiencing those things as a real sensation. Now you mentioned The Sims. Uh, the Sims in 2050 might have such enormous AI behind them that they're as smart as you and I. Some of those Sims might be able to read the internet, read these articles about the real world. All they've got to do is hire an Android and they can migrate from the Sims neighborhood and buy a house in New York and set up a real company and have a real existence. So you might see this uh, two-way commuting between the the real world, which we live in, and the Sims virtual world, which is an alternative reality, which is in some ways just as real, but it, it, it runs on a different platform, essentially. So you've got one running in the physical universe, the other one running on a tiny fraction of that physical universe, which we call right. the IT. But it's uh, they're still subjectively the same. They still feel the same. And the Sims and the AIs could migrate between the virtual world into the real world, and you could migrate from the real world down into that uh, virtual world and you could move between those two at will it, it's interesting with with all of these issues uh there's there's the undertone of uh, there's like tension with with morality and, and ethics mm. and i think especially you know it's not seen anywhere more than in this aspect of a uh you know th th than in the idea of a digital afterlife because i, I think there's going to be if, if this becomes a reality there's going to be two camps there's going to be the camp of people that that you know, want, want to die naturally. They believe that existence should be finite. Yeah. And then there's going to be people, probably the rich, depending on how accessible this is, who want to live forever, who want to be uploaded to this virtual SIM facility that you're talking about. Um, and I do think, I do think you're going to see that sort of ethical divide. Yeah, I think you will. And it's, uh, let's not underestimate how attractive the digital existence could be. You can do a lot of things. You can inhabit hundreds of different kinds of androids. You can be whoever you want to be in that kind of world. You've got telepathic communication to everyone else. You can share concepts telepathically. You can uh, be as close to somebody else as being in their head, being in their body. Uh, you can do all sorts of things in that world. So it will be immensely attractive, but there will still be a lot of people, like I say, who want to just stay like perfectly normal human beings as we are supposed to be, that's the way they might see it. And you know, who am I to disagree? There will be those two camps. There will definitely be. Uh, the real big question for me is, will they be able to live peacefully uh, in coexistence, right. or will one decide that the other one is not valid? You know, the real people might decide that you know we don't want to share a world with these virtual people creating all these problems. Uh, so we're just going to switch you all off. And of course, they would retaliate, doing all the electronic stuff and. Uh, hacking and stuff and crashing all the systems we might have warfare between these two camps it might not be a peaceful process i can i can for sure um i can for sure see that and as an aside i mean a lot of people would argue that the entire concept or, or the practice of how we treat death is, is antiquated in general i mean the idea that we're burying 
our bodies underground with, you know, with a tombstone and a, a plot of, you know, three by five plot of land um, that might be seen as antiquated, especially when you think about overpopulation, the fact that we're going to have 9 billion people on this earth in 50 years. Uh, so I wonder, I, I know that, you, you know, you don't have a, a formal prediction about this, or at least I didn't read one. What do what you think about how that process will, will play out? Will you see more cremation of bodies or, 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 or you're not really sure? Yeah, I've never given it a moment's thought, uh, to be quite honest. It's probably not the best time to start thinking about it just during a podcast because <laughs> I would just be rambling inside my head if I tried to do that. I've never thought about it. It's an interesting question. Yeah, no, it, it's just something to think about. And, and then the, the, the million-dollar question for, for digital afterlife, Ian, what's your, what's your confidence level for whether or not that will be technically feasible in 2050? I would say there's a 80 or 90% chance it'll be technically feasible and probably 80 or 80% chance of it being legally feasible. I think that there's sufficient objections. It might not be permissible, even if it is feasible. So you might be able to do it, but you might not be allowed to. Uh, that's a good chance too. So you multiply those together, you've got what, 65% chance mm -hmm. of it being allowed and feasible around 2050 for the first people that can afford it and 2060, 2070 for the rest of us. So for, for our younger listeners who, who are listening to, to this on Spotify or Apple in, in, well, in, 20, in 20... Anyone under 40 has a very high chance of being around when this becomes feasible. If you're um, listening in 2050 and there's no option, um, and assuming that you're well enough to uh, well off enough to afford it, there's no option to uh, embark on a digital afterlife, you know that, that Dr. Ian Pearson told you otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy with that. I won't be here. I have to defend myself anyway. So. No, you, you never know. Given well, I'll be... I'll be a hundred and I'll be 90 uh, in 2050. So uh, I, I don't expect to be around long enough to have to argue about this. <laughs> uh, I, I, get, I guess we'll see about that, Ian. Listen, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm sure my listeners want to know where they can go to follow your work and learn more about you in general. Uh, I suppose the most of my ideas go on my blog, which is timeguide.wordpress.com. Okay. And are you on, you're not on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or anything? I, I am. I'm on Twitter as time guide as well. Um, my Instagram is only a few pictures. So it's not worth going to. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and don't forget you, you have a couple of, of movies to, to add to your list. Transcendence, Her, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, if you I haven't a, seen- I, I got a long list of movies I need to watch. <laughs> um, just, just, I guess, help you, help you think through these, these predictions. Futurologist, Dr. Ian Pearson. Thank you so much again for joining me. I really okay, appreciate your time. Good fun. Thank you. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with futurologist uh, Dr. Ian Pearson. We covered a lot of ground in our uh, 90 minutes together. And, and I sort of, you know, I want to unpack some of the um, concepts that he he spoke of and just, you know, speak candidly on whether or not, not whether or not I, I, I agree with the predictions because he's the one that, you know, is, is a, a distinguished futurist. I, I'm, I guess I, I more want to want to you know give like a thumbs up or a thumbs down in terms of whether or not it's a net good or net bad for society. For example, um, he talked a lot about life extension and the idea that humans will have the capability to, to become immortal and potentially uploading consciousness. So I think that would be um, again like with most of these, th th that's sort of a, a dark, ominous uh, prospect that you know you could have rich people surviving for hundreds of years and you know the rest of the world scrounging for resources so so i think that would be a net negative um the toilets of the future the mini laboratories that sounds like it could have a, a ton of utility um and i think he mentioned they, they already have that so that's that one's a positive 
the you know Ian mentioned sex with robots, uh, sexual contact potentially occurring more frequently with robots than with people. You know that's another slippery slope. Um, and uh, I think I and I, I you know I mentioned um, with him that you know I had Stephanos Axios on to discuss automation and and this came up as well. Uh, and and I do think that that you know poses poses a threat to sort of the inherent value of human relationships if if you know we're just reducing it to the transaction of of having sex with a robot um so that's a negative hypersonic tra- uh, planes if it if it can be done as you know uh, efficiently and environmentally friendly as as Ian mentioned yeah that would that would be terrific uh net positive and then the e babies and afterlife. I mean, you know, obviously we spoke about the uh, the issues with, with both of those. So those are those are horrifying possibilities. And, and if if he's correct that you know there's an eighty percent chance that 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 might be the reality in in thirty years, then I'm I'm certainly concerned. Uh, and there were tons of other predictions that uh, Ian made that I didn't even have time to mention, uh, just because you know we covered so much ground. He talks about uh, flying vehicles. How he does believe that. By 2050, personal flying vehicles will replace cars some of the time, uh, but he says their numbers are likely to be a little more than helicopters today. Um, it's interesting because uh, 100 years ago, right, people thought – or not 100 years ago, but back when the automobile was invented and people forecasted into the 2000s, people thought that flying cars would be prevalent, right? Like you think about Back to the Future, um, the DeLorean and all that. People expected there to be flying cars at this point in history, um, and – I, I sort of agree that I don't think um, for one reason or the other, I, I don't know, know enough about the, the uh, technological you know undertaking there, but I, I don't see that uh, those becoming universal. I, I guess I can sort of imagine, like he said, having a handful um, akin to the number of, of helicopters. I'm not so sure that that's, that's a, a possibility. Um, he also says, he predicts that uh, hanging out with holograms, you know, home, your homes might have an area in 2050 which will allow you to receive and broadcast full-size 3D holograms of your friends. Uh, that that could be. I could definitely see. I mean, you know, we sort of have that now, right? Like with with um, FaceTime and and video uh, chat functionalities. Uh, all a hologram is 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 another uh, way of projecting that sort of um, video and audio chat. So. I can definitely uh, see that see that becoming um, a thing 30 years from now. He also says uh, that smart homes, kind of like a not even beyond a smart home, like a fully automatic home served by robots, um, will be the case in in 2050. So you'd have imagine this. This is actually what Ian writes. You'd have a robot chef preparing your meal with the help of devices such as like a 3D print microwave. The robot chef would order food from stores daily or weekly following a list that you have previously compiled. Um, there'll be mini drones carrying out uh, cleaning duties, collecting dust and litter, and also carrying out hygienic uh, UV treatment of kitchen countertops, bathroom, and toilet. So it's it's basically um, you know man's liberation from domestic slavery. People in this potential smart home in 30 years, people would never have to do menial tasks again. So forget – having to cook or clean or do laundry or do dishes. It would just be, um, you know, all, all uh, provided for by AI. And, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're trending in that direction. You know, you look at vacuum services, you look at like uh, the, the Roomba and, and other similar, and 
I think I can I can definitely see something like this taking place if you sort of extrapolate uh, what's what's already transpired. But the the issue is I do think that I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a net positive if we're freeing up all of our time from menial tasks. I mean, first of all, there are, there are benefits to to these things like cooking, for example, is. It's enjoyable in its own right. Like, like I, I think there is an intrinsic there, there is, there is cooking's fun, right? And on top of that, cooking is a source of creativity. I mean, for many people, that's that's a hobby. That's the highlight of their day. Um, the other thing is, I, I do think that some menial tasks have there is like a therapeutic value to you know. I, I know that I personally love at the end of the day just washing dishes or or you know cleaning cleaning countertops as as weird as that sound it, it sounds it's kind of refreshing after like a day of you know exerting your your mental power <clears throat> staring at a screen it's kind of nice doing something different so I, I just worry that if this is the future we're heading towards when you know we are um we are uh, supposedly freeing ourselves from domestic slavery or whatever it's it's like to what to what end you know to uh, to serve what purpose um there's a couple more i want i want to touch on so Ian uh, mentions, again, this is on the 2050.earth slash user slash Ian Pearson website. He mentions that in, the, in 2050, he thinks the number of sovereign states will increase. So wealthy corporations and wealthy citizens will buy up the world's ocean areas to create their own island states in international waters. Um, that, that's an interesting one. I, you, know, you might be able to see that happen. And what else is here? I, I think we covered most of the big ones. He talks about robot rights that's i think i think that's that's an area uh people have written a lot about that one um that as as ai becomes uh more prevalent in society the question will become you know what how do we how should we regard these robots or are they people should they be afforded rights you know legal status things like that i i think that you can definitely see that um that issue becoming uh, more of a topic of conversation in the next couple decades. So, uh, Ian and I covered a ton in this episode. Lots of lots of food for thought. And, ex- and like we said, you know, if you're listening to this in in the future, in 2050, 30, 29 years from now, um, you know, pull out a clipboard and, and tabulate some of his his predictions. See see how he did. You know, is is uh, is there a digital afterlife? Are you able to? Um, upload your consciousness and extend your lifespan. If not, you can tweet at uh, tweet to Ian at Time Guide and let him know um, in in 2050 when you're reading this. So, as I mentioned at the outset of the episode, this is a two-part uh, future series. So this week was part one with Dr. Ian Pearson. Next week is part two with Tracy Follows, and we'll be continuing the thread of uh, many issues that uh, you know I, I addressed in this episode with Ian, as well as the notion of a digital afterlife, or more specifically, a virtual legacy beyond the grave, as well as health passports, biohacking, and relationships with machines to even mind clones. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore, write to the pod via email, nervousheppispodcast.gmail.com, and search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. And remember, if you're thinking about getting yourself a pet, maybe wait about 30 years, and instead of a cat or or a fish or a bird, you can bring home a robotic dog. (laughs) Take care and stay nervous.